Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, for those who are new, we are uh, two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through our study on the Apostles' Creed. Listen, I, I, let me say this. I recognize whenever we've said the creed together and quoted it or watched it, that there are two places that people seem to cringe uh, whenever we talk about the Apostles' Creed. One is the line, he descended into hell. Um, people kind of, yeah, everybody's going strong, and then and he rose again. And, and then, um, then it comes, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. And there's something about the word Holy Catholic Church that just doesn't come off of our tongues. Uh, if, if you're from an evangelical background, um, you know, one of our distinguishing characteristics is we're not Catholic. Uh, and so, uh, so whenever you say Holy Catholic Church, it kind of you kind of back off of that line. And if you ra- were raised in the Catholic Church, you, it's kind of like, yes, I knew it. There it is, right there in the Apostles' Creed. Let me just say this: uh, the word Catholic means universal in its core, and that's even why the Catholic Church formal is called the Catholic Church. It means universal. But we're not talking about the Catholic Church in the terms of a formal institution. We're talking about Catholic in the sense of universal. Revelation says this, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude. No one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and worshiping. People, this is the Holy Catholic Church. People of all times, all ages, all races coming together under the banner that is Jesus. Today, I'd like to challenge us a little bit. Um, let me just say, I, I vary in styles at times depending on what my goal is. You know, I, one of my favorite uh, comic strips is Peanuts. I, I Kathy makes fun of me because I read comic strips. I, lo- I-, I love to read them every Sunday morning, especially, um, anyway. <clears throat> but Schultz one time had um, Charlie Brown at an archery competition, just practicing. And uh, it-, it was like every arrow was right in a bullseye. And someone said to him, wow, you're really good at this. And he said, well, truthfully, what I do is I shoot the arrow, and then I go and draw the bullseye around it. Um, do you know, when it comes sometimes to church, this is what we do. We, we, we do something, and then we draw our own idea around it and say, this is the church. And so today, I would like to challenge all of us on um, this truth. I believe in the universal church. I believe in the universal church. I believe in the holy Catholic church. In other words, church is not optional. Church is not an add-on. We will see that today that 
there are certain challenges to the church and to what we understand as church, but there is not an option to whether we belong to the church or not. I also want to talk about the difference. I understand there is a difference between the church universal that every tongue and tribe and nation gathered before the throne and the local church. Uh, that's too often there are people who are focused on the universal church. Oh, it's, you know, when I come to know, um, when I come to know Jesus, I'm, I become part of this ethereal group known as the universal church that means everybody's a part of. But the local church, I can take or leave. And other people say, no, you know, you've got to, the local church is everything. Don't worry about the universal church. Just worry about the local church. And I want to say it's not an either or deal. It's all of it. We need to know that we are part of the church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages and all times and all races. And at the same time, everyone is to be a part of a local church. Everybody's to be in relationship with one another. And I hope by the end you'll see that these concepts are not, are not optional. What's the problem then? Well, part of the problem here is we've inherited a lot. We've inherited a lot of great teaching about, uh, the, from our fathers in the faith, about who we are in the faith and in our relationship with Jesus Christ and how things are to operate, but we've also inherited a lot of man-made ideas about what we think church is. Buildings, times, service order, type of music. There's a lot that could go on and on and on. And questions arise about the church. Is it a, is it a family? Is it a body? Is it a corporation? Is it a hospital? Most of Paul's letters were written to local congregations, local churches in various cities. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus even sends, gives John seven letters to give to local churches, specific churches, and he is seen walking among the churches. In other words, one of the things I hope just to kind of lay out, and here's my, here's my issue today. I've preached a lot on the church in 25 years. I've talked a lot about the church, and uh, as you know, I'm a local church guy. This is my life, pastoring this small congregation, this gathering of people known as fullness. I believe in the local church. My hope, though, is that we can catch a vision of what the church is supposed to be about. And at the same time, we can, we can see that we are a part of a bigger thing than just us. So I've got two goals here, really. Focus on the big, to say we're a part of something awesome, and to focus on the immediate. It's us here and why it's important. John Piper, and I'm going to quote a lot of authors more than usual today. I've got some quotes because I want, to, I want you to see that there are some people from various backgrounds, so uh, from various denominations even, that have a lot to say about the importance of the church, as well as look at the scripture passage from Ephesians 3. So first, look at what John Piper says. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. 
personally, I don't really like the word institution, but let's go with what uh, Piper is saying here. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all the pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the Bride of Christ. Lift up your eyes, O Christians. You belong to a society that will never cease, to the apple of God's eye, to the eternal and cosmic church of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think Piper is mixing, mincing words here when he's talking about how important the church is. Do you ever get the feeling that we as followers of Jesus Christ, members of church, ever undersell, underestimate, undervalue what it is that we're a part of? George Barna, a researcher on church trends in America, says this. Uh, he says that America's, Americans today are more devoted to seeking spiritual enlightenment than at any other time, previous time in the past century. I have to sneeze. But it's not, it's not, you know, it's hard to sneeze in front of 200 people. Um, <laughs> and it's incredibly distracting, isn't it? <laughs> I'm trying to be really insightful here. And uh... anyway, Barna says that uh, we're more devoted, we're, we're very spiritual, and we're seeking spirituality. But Christians and the church are having less impact on our society than at any other time in our history. In other words, he, he's trying to hold up these two, this dichotomy. People are really spiritual and looking, and yet the churches, the Christians, us, we're having less impact on those who are looking. Why? Because a growing majority of people have dismissed the Christian faith as weak outdated and irrelevant. And one of the reasons they dismiss the Christian faith as weak, outdated, and irrelevant is because of what they see. The biggest stumbling block is actually the local church. The downfall of the church has not been the content of his message, he says, but its failure to practice the truth they proclaim. In other words, failing to implement the practices we profess. He says, churches are for the most part, for the most part have failed to address uh, the nagging anxieties and deep-seated fears of the people, focusing instead upon outdated or secondary issues and proposing tired or trite solutions. In other words, he's saying that we've lost our mission, that instead of Focusing on the primary, we focus on the secondary or tertiary or whatever the next word, second, third, or fourth is below that. I, I, I lose the vocabulary. But we've lost what's really important. And we, 
we elevate what's not as important to be critical. And then people who are looking for spiritual life look at us and say, wow, they're just so focused on that building or that, that thing. The average church size in America, by the way, is 95 people uh, each week in worship in any given church. That's the average, 95 per church. And yet over half of all people who proclaim to be followers of Christ go to churches that are more than 1,000. So you've got this great divide between types of churches and sizes of churches. And there's any kind of type of church that you might want to find out there. There are uh, evangelistic centers, uh, churches that focus each and every week in their public worship on seeing the lost come to know Jesus. There are mission centers where there's a total commitment of that local congregation to world missions. There are information centers, people uh, pouring over uh, teaching and different theological ideas. There are program centers putting on a good show, having as many people as possible, age-appropriate programs. I mean, I'm just going down a list. I'm not hammering any one. I'm just saying you can find any of these out there, fellowship centers, where it's all about, all about the relationship, and it's all of the emphasis is on body life. There are counseling centers that are, that are places where people go to, to try and receive help and counsel through their time of need. There are rescue missions. Um, training schools, resort centers, uh, fortress centers. Uh, you know, it's us against the world. Let's just uh, build our walls. Let's home everything and come on in and, and just try and hang on till Jesus comes back again. There are mega malls. Let's present as many different things as we can so we can get as many different people as possible. There are centers of tradition. Let's do things like we've always done it so that we can pass it on to the next generation or corporations. I mean, I'm just listing thoughts, types of churches that we see in the, the world around us. All too many times, the problem with the church, as I see it, <clears throat> is that it begins with the centered idea that is us. I don't know if that hits you. In other words, it's man and woman centered. What we do too often in church is dictated by us, when in fact the church has always been God-centered. The purpose and plan of the church has to do with God in the middle of his people. But in the absence of God's presence, sometimes all we're left with is skill and organization and planning and doing things really well. Jim Cimbala says this, the answer won't come from another seminar when he's talking about the problem with the church. He says, we have too many mere technicians who are only stressing methodology and they are increasingly invading the church. The answer is not in an inhuman methodology. The answer is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The answer is in the grace of God. So what is the church? If I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of depressing us all about uh, the problems with the church, but how do we 
even think about church in order to get to a place of saying, what is it that God has for us? Jonathan Lehman, a young author on church life in a series by Nine Marks, says this, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee on another's membership in Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. In other words, he's saying there's a relationship that comes from Christ that gathers together in order to be raised in the faith, to hear the gospel proclaimed, and participate in what we see as ordinances, uh, the Lord's table and baptism. Most of us have been around long enough that we realize that the church is not a structure and we know that the church is a people, but let's talk about what that looks like. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach uh, two points of a four-point sermon uh, today, and then I'll do the next two points next week. Because in the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and in the communion of the saints. And really, that phrase goes together. The church, the communion of the saints. So this week, I want to kind of, I want to, I want to poke us a little bit. Um, and so you'll probably go away more provoked than satisfied. So let me just go ahead and, let, and lay that out. I, I, I just want to poke a little bit today on all of us to pray this week about places where we have come to an understanding of what does it mean to be the church so that next week I'll hopefully give us an idea of what does it mean to be the communion of saints, the church of Jesus Christ, this communion of saints. So Gabriel and I were laughing about um, this morning professor who would always basically say, hey, if I, if, if I offend you today, just pray for me. I'm not meaning to offend. I, I do want to say straight out front, that some of, the, some of the authors I'm going to read to you, they will provoke you. And they're well-known names, as I've already quoted a little bit, uh, some. And so I want to go along with them to just say, look, I, I am a wholly dissatisfied, and by wholly I mean H-O-L-Y, wholly dissatisfaction with the state of the church. Um, and and I, I want us to hopefully, in our small part, wake up to who we are in Jesus. I'll just say this. I'll go ahead and start poking right off the bat. <clears throat> As a pastor, it, it, there are certain things about church life that drive me crazy. I mean, I'm trying to be a happy, satisfied individual in life. I'm trying to love people, and I'm particularly trying to love the people God has given me to pastor. Um, and at the same time, there are certain hopes and dreams and aspirations I have for the people of God to see their place as the people of God. And um, it, it, it pains me and hurts me and drives me crazy when I see people who are even a part of fullness and have been for a long, long time that that have an idea about what fullness is and what the church is that are so diametrically opposed to what I, I thought I was preaching for all these years. 
Now, I may not be making sense to you, but hopefully by the end we'll, if you've been around long enough. So, um, so I, I, for instance, I, I, I love live stream. I love the fact that you can, if you're sick today, you can watch church. But I got to tell you, it drives me crazy. And please don't ever say this to me again in your entire lives. <laughs> that you woke up late and chose to watch church from your bed and it's so much easier. To me, to me, you, you're missing. I want to I say, do you even know Jesus? Um, because there's something joyful about the body of Christ gathering together. I told you I was going to poke you a little bit. So I know none of you have ever said that to me who are here. And if you're at home watching on television, we're glad you're here, but get here. All right, let's look at Ephesians 3. Let's look at Ephesians 3. Here's what I want to talk about first. The mystery of the church. The mystery of the church. Ephesians 3, verses 2 and following says this. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Paul cracks me up. Look. He's saying, I, I want to tell you about this mystery that was revealed to me, and now I'm going to share with you. It could sound prideful, except it's not. He's, he's trying to share with the Ephesian church this mystery. And, and he's going to go on in just a second. You'll see, I want to set it up, that this mystery has been hidden throughout the ages, and this mystery uncovered or revealed this revelation that's taken place, is the greatest mystery uncovered of all time. He's giving it, he's selling it big, that this mystery. Now, when you and I look at this mystery revealed, we're going to have trouble understanding what is the big deal. So, but to Paul, this is more than a big, this is unbelievable what he's sharing. He says, in reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. It's been hidden for ages, but now it's been revealed to me and to his prophets and to the apostles. Here it is. This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. You're looking at it like, that's it? That's the mystery? This big mystery is that Gentiles and Jews come together in Jesus, by the way, I want to say, have the ability to be members of one body together. Paul's saying, this is it. This is the mystery revealed. It's been hidden through the ages, but now it's revealed. Think of, um, we, we can't connect with this, really. Think of Alabama-Auburn times a million. Fans against each other. You know, I, I, one of my children is here today. And he graduated from Auburn. And, you know, you, Auburn is your favorite team, and then whoever's playing against Alabama. That's your second favorite team. 
Um, that you just, you, it's, it's inherent in the scheme. I root against Alabama. I'm for Auburn, root against, and Alabama fans are the same way, except almost 90% of Alabama fans didn't even go to the school. So, um, <laughs> it's a little dig from the Auburn side. But think of it from a million times, a million times over, it's just this antagonism, especially from a guy like, come on back, come on back. So especially a guy like Paul who held up Judaism as we're it and you're not. We're it and you're not. I mean, it was racist to the hundredth degree. And it was racist with a theological underpinning, saying we are God's chosen people, you're not. So for a guy like Paul to come and to say, hey, here's a mystery. The Jews aren't God's chosen. We are God's people. Through Jesus, it is, it is us. Now, he's also in Romans makes a big deal how um, the Gentiles have been grafted into the tree kind of thing. You know, there's not two trees. There's one tree. The Gentiles are grafted in. It's, there's mystery upon mystery here that I wish Paul had cleared up a little better. But for this sake, let me just say this. We are one people. This mystery uncovered is this, that in Jesus there's no Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We're one. We are, we are one. And this, this mystery is uncovered. Is it possible that one of the reasons the church has lost its edge is because we are not one people. We are many peoples, divided by race, divided by theologies as we see them, our perception on the truth, divided by uh, economic factors, Think about this. Gabriel read this passage this morning from Matthew where Jesus says, hey, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, this to you, Peter, but on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And they're like, great, Jesus is going to build his church. What's a church? You know, I mean, they never even heard the term, this whole thing. It's the first time it's used in the New Testament. Jesus is going to build. I'm sure they thought of it as a Jewish thing. Because that's the only model they had to work within. Even after everything's taken place, they say to Jesus, hey, now are you going to build your kingdom? Basically, they're saying, now are the Jews taken back over again? Are we coming out strong again? Are we going to take it over? It become nationalistic with an, the, the theological underpinning. And Paul is saying, it's not that at all. The mystery is this. Jesus died for all. And together, we make up this thing called the church. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We don't have time to unpackage this scripture, but Paul is saying, hey, this is what's even more incredible, is that now God is actually not just saving the Gentiles, he's using the Gentiles to let the world know that Christ is in them as well. It's a powerful statement. Look, 
most of us go through life with way too little understanding of this incredible truth that God loves people and he saves people through Jesus and together we all stand, you know, we all use that phrase, we all stand equal at the foot of the cross. We have no idea. I mean, we all stand equal. That means the guy right next to me, it doesn't matter what he looks like, and the woman right next to me, no matter where she comes from, we are all one in him. This mystery is revealed. We are together in this. That's actually the easier point of the two. The second I want to look at it today is the calling of the church going on in Ephesians. He says, now that this mystery is revealed and we've come together, he says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is the wisdom of God going to be revealed to the world? According to this, through the church. That's the way God has chosen to work. Through his church, his intent is now that through the church, God's manifold wisdom would be made known. Let me back up just real quick and say, well, again, what is the problem here? Well, part of the problem is with our definition of church. Um, the word from which church is derived in the Greek is ekklesia. Ekklesia, ek means out, kaleo, call. In other words, called out people. So whenever you see the term church in the English language, it, it's from this word ekklesia, which means called out people. So who is the church? The called out people. The people are the church. But after Constantine becomes emperor of Rome and becomes safe, he, he takes over all the pagan temples and builds all these incredible places, and he starts using the word kuriakos, which means house of the Lord or lordly house. And you can't see it very well, and the, the brown's starting to get together, but kuriakos becomes kirkus, which becomes kirka or church. And we get to, to me, these terms are diametrically really, I don't want to say opposed, but there's a major difference in understanding between ecclesia, which is people, and kyriakos, which is house or place. So church really derives from an idea of a place where the New Testament is talking about the people. And even though we over time have said over and over again that church is not a place, it's the people, there's something inherent in the word that says it's about a place, right? So when you say, I'm going to church, I'm going to a place. But the New Testament knows no idea of that. The New Testament is saying, when we talk about to the church at Ephesus, He's talking to the called out ones, the people. When Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, he's going to build his called out ones. It, it has to do with people, the body of Christ. And because we too often still see church as a place rather than a people, 
when we talk about the calling of the church, we start talking about an individual place. And to me, philosophically, it falls into a problem. And that's why millennials are saying, and others are saying, look, I've got no place for church. What are they saying? I got no, they really, I don't want to go to a place. It's not about a place. It's about a people. Now, here's the challenge. The people meet in a place. I mean, anytime you want to meet with some people, you're going to go somewhere to meet them, right? Even if you go to Starbucks, you're going to meet people at a place. So where the church gathers should not be near as important as the people gathering, but we do gather in a, in a, in a place, in a house, in a, wherever it is that we gather, there's got to be a place where that gathering occurs. The problem is, again, we lose, we lose the importance and the intent of God's plan for us if we equate church to a place. Galatians 1.4 says this, who gave himself, talking about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He, he gave himself to rescue us. Rescue us from this age according to his plan. In other words, if we're called out, right? We're the called out ones. What are we called out of? Right? We're called out of a present evil age. We're called out of darkness. We are called to light. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The intent of the church is this. We are the called out ones. We've been called out of darkness, which, by the way, that's got a whole different sermon topic we can talk about, not living in darkness. Not continuing to walk. We're called into light. We're to live as people of the light in order to declare the light to who? Those that are still in darkness. I know this sounds so basic, but does it not? Shouldn't it just kind of stir us up a little bit to say, wow, this is, this is important for what God has for us. We are called out of darkness into light. We are called by Jesus to himself. We're called to himself. There's a term, it, it's called imperium, from which we get imperial. Imperium is the, I can't even know the form of the word, somebody who's much smarter in grammar and English can help me, but it, 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 the idea is this, there's authority, ultimate authority somewhere that dictates what takes place. Right? So, in, in an imperium philosophical thought, the state is the one who has ultimate control. The state has the authority to take life and death, to punish crimes. The state has the authority to regulate. Now, not every state is good. Um, we were talking this morning about, you know, missionaries and other countries. You know, not every state is good, but neither is our state good. The state has the authority to regulate things. It can regulate, like, soccer clubs and civic organizations. and It has ultimate authority over those things. To me, the church stands outside of the state because our ultimate authority resides in Jesus. We are 
we try to follow the laws of the state, but if the state said you can no longer meet as a church, what would we do? We would still, our authority, as Peter and Paul, as Peter and John said, look, our authority doesn't rest with you guys. We are called to Jesus. We are called to Him. And we're called to each other. Here's our challenge we live in America. And we are a very individualistic society, right? I mean, you can be whatever you want to be. If you just work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you push yourself hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. Now, see, I don't think it's true. I'm never going to be a great football player. I just don't. I never had the body type to be a great football player or basketball player. But anyway, that's still the individualistic idea. The church, the call to the church is the call to Jesus and to each other. Let me read you this long quote by Gordon Fee in his book, Paul the Spirit and the People of God, and let you be challenged by this. Gordon Fee, by the way, so far this morning I've read to you John Piper, who's an evangelical, reformed Baptist, Jim Cimbala, uh, Brooklyn Tab. Um, who else have I quoted so far? I'm trying to get different ones. Gordon Fee is a Pentecostal scholar who's written some great books on how to read the Bible for all it's worth and this study on Paul. Listen to what he says about this. He says, A single person is sitting at home in front of the TV. A Christian broadcast is on. A sermon is preached. An invitation is given. And the person responds by accepting Christ. But the only church the person attends is by way of the TV with no connection to a local body of believers. The question, is this person saved? I would answer, only God knows, but such salvation lies totally outside the New Testament frame of reference. To be saved means especially to be joined to the people of God. In this sense, the third century father Cyprian had it right. There is no salvation outside the church because God is a people is looking for a people for his name, not a miscellaneous, unconnected set of individuals. God is not saving, is, excuse me, God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is creating a people among whom he can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. I told you, I was going to provoke you just a little bit. I mean, we think of salvation as a totally individual experience, do we not? You want to be saved? Pray this prayer and you're saved and go into heaven. Gordon Fee is challenging us to say this. God is not just saving you to himself. He's saving us for each other. And in the relationship, we're a part of the, the church. 1 Peter 1 says this, To God's elect, strangers in the world, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling by his blood. We have been called together. Paul says that it is through, that, that the mystery has been revealed. 
And it's this, that through the church, it's God's intent that we're held up to the world to reveal his mystery. And the word that he's using there, by the way, is this. It's like we're a gem or a sparkling diamond. I've used this before because the picture to me is so dynamic that the church is like this diamond held up to the light of the glory of God, that when the light hits it, all the facets of a diamond, all the cut of the diamond, it shines the light in different directions and in different ways to the world around. Meaning that because we're different and the world is different, that there's this beauty that the church, when held up to the light of the glory of God, displays the the beautiful truths of God in all its various facets to the world around. My question is this. How are we doing? Are we displaying the beauty of God to the world around us? Are we being held up and letting God's light hit us? Are we are we using the way he's made us to display the truth to the world around us? How is that accomplished? Well, you're going to have to come back next week, and I'm going to give you some of the ideas about how that is accomplished. But here's what I want us to take away this morning. The church was not man's idea. The church was God's idea. It is Jesus who builds up his called-out ones, He calls us to himself and to each other to be held up to the world as a display of the beauty of God so that the truths of God can be communicated to the world around us. Here's the truth. What he calls us to is impossible in and of ourselves. But if you go to last week's sermon, the person of the Holy Spirit, by his spirit, this can happen if we will give ourselves to this. Well, what does it mean? Here's one last challenging quote. This is by Henry Nouwen, a Catholic, um, very introspective. He says this, the church is an object of faith. In the Apostles' Creed, we pray, I believe in God the Father, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. We must believe in the church. Hang on. The Apostles' Creed does not say that the church is an organization that helps us to believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, No, we are called to believe in the church with the same faith we believe in God. Often it seems harder to believe in the church than to believe in God. But whenever we separate our belief in God from our belief in the church, we become unbelievers. God has given us as the the church as the place where God becomes God with us. Do you think the church is important? That last quote challenges me every time I read it. I, 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 we could take it apart. But what I'm saying is this. The church is a big deal. It is incredibly important. And I understand all the dynamics that go in to say church as we know it is not really church. 
But you know what? I think the church in Corinth really wasn't all it was supposed to be either. I mean, it, it had a couple of issues that would make us blush. Why? Because we are fellow travelers on this journey. And we could do one of two things. We could throw stones at what the church is supposed to be, saying, ah, we don't measure up. Yeah, you're right, we don't, but neither do you. None of us do yet. But we still aim for this calling that God has for us as his people to hold up to the world and display the splendor and glory of God. I pray that that will be us, the called-out ones, not this place, but the called-out ones of Christ, known as fullness, that we will display to the world the glory of God. Lord, I pray this morning that you will help us. You'll help us, that you'll guide us, you'll direct us, you'll lead us. Lord, we, we recognize that there's that to be the church, to call that ones, to relate to one another, to display the glory of God, it takes faith. And I pray that knowing that without faith, it's impossible to please you. And so I pray that faith will rise up within us. Lord, may we be who you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that you would take the frailty of my language and words today and, and help by the power of the Spirit, for truth to prevail in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray that any place the enemy would come and condemn and try and say they're trying to build something at that place or trying to manipulate or whatever that the enemy may do, I pray those words would be silenced and pray instead the truth of the Spirit's calling, the revelation that Jesus builds his called out ones that were called to Jesus to each other in order to display the glory of God that that will be preeminent today. Show us our part. Show us our part together. Let faith rise up within us. In Jesus' name. Stand up with me if you would. I would like for us to sing that song that Michelle sang earlier to close with by faith, um, for us to, to just focus on the words of this. It's, it's a catchy song, but in, 